Thank you for choosing to listen to our sermon podcast. My name is Chris Mitchell. I'm one of the pastors here at First Covenant Church of Anchorage. If you have any questions or prayer requests, feel free to stop by or send an email to office at anchoragefirstcovenant.com. God bless. This is Martin Luther King Jr. Weekend. And um, since I've, I've become pastor here, whenever I preach on this weekend, I always like to share one of his sermons, because uh, Dr. King you know, had a day job. He was not professionally Dr. Martin Luther King, you know, going out there and like a superman, you know, doing this and doing that. Um, he was a pastor, and he wrote sermons, and he shared sermons. And so uh, I'd like to share one of his sermons with you today. Uh, the title of the sermon is The Man Who Was a Fool. Um, he delivered this in 1961 um, uh, in Detroit. To actually, to, he was invited to a uh, to a Lent to to do this uh, a Lenten service in Detroit, and so he did share this. And then uh, that version, his original version in 1961, was very long. And um, but uh, he later put out a book called Strength to Love, which was a collect is a collection of sermons, and he revised it a little bit. So I'll be preaching from the revised, which is a little bit shorter, and it's still a little bit longer because. Um, Dr. King is part of the black church tradition, and so their sermons are a little bit more expansive than ours. Uh, they spend a little bit more time sharing. Um, so, uh, so it's a little bit longer than ours. I've actually trimmed it just a little bit. There's a couple things I'm like, oh, uh, I'll take this out, um, just because I thought, well, I'll just tighten it up a little bit. Um, so, oh, and he preaches from the King James because this was written in 1961, so some of the language is going to be used, and he has a great vocabulary. Um, you can find the sermon online if you're like, oh, huh, wait, what did he say? Because um, his words sometimes are a little bit longer, larger too, so the rhythms are going to be a little bit different. And, uh, and this sermon um, is a reflection on this parable, uh, Luke 12, uh, starting at verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Tell my brother to divide their inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, The man who appointed me judge or an arbiter between you two. And then he said to them, Watch out. Be under guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist of an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. And who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. All right, and now I'm going to be moving actually to Dr. Dr. King's words. I would like to share with you a dramatic little story that is significantly relevant in its implications and profoundly meaningful in its conclusions. It's the story of a man who by modern standards would be considered eminently successful, yet Jesus called him a fool. The central character in this drama is a certain rich man 
whose farm yielded such heavy crops that he decided to build new and larger barns, saying, There I will bestow all my fruits and my goods, and I will say, Soul, soul thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, and drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. And it was so. At the height of prosperity, he died. Think of this man. If he lived in our community today, he'd be considered a big shot. He would abound with social prestige and community respectability. He would be one of the privileged few in the economic power structure. And yet a Galilean peasant had the audacity to call him a fool. Jesus did not call this man a fool simply because he possessed wealth. Jesus was never made a sweeping indictment against wealth. Rather, he condemned the misuse of wealth. Money, like any other force such as electricity, is amoral and can be used for either good or evil. It is true that Jesus commanded the rich young ruler to sell all, but in this instance, as Dr. J. J. George A. Butrick has said, Jesus was prescribing individual surgery, not making a universal diagnosis. Nothing in wealth is inherently vicious, and nothing in poverty is inherently virtuous. Jesus did not condemn this man because he had made money in a dishonest fashion. Apparently, he acquired his wealth by hard work and practical know-how and far-sighted vision of a good businessman. Why then was he a fool? The rich man was a fool because he permitted the ends for which he lived to become confused with the means by which he lived. The economic structure of his life absorbed his destiny. Each of us lives in two realms, the internal and the external. The internal is the realm of spiritual ends expressed in art, literature, morals, and religion. The external is that complex of devices, techniques, mechanisms, and instrumentalities by means of which we live. These include the house we live in, the car we drive, the clothes we wear, the economic sources we acquire, the material stuff we must have to exist. There is always a danger that we will permit the means by which we live to replace the ends by which we live, the internal to become lost in the external. The rich man was a fool because he failed to keep a line of distinction between the means and the ends, between structure and destiny. His life was submerged in the rolling waters of his livelihood. This does not mean our external lives are um, unimportant. We have both a privilege and a duty to seek the basic material necessities of life. Only an irrelevant religion fails to be concerned about man's economic well-being. Religion at its best recognizes that the soul is crushed as long as the body is tortured with hunger pains and harrowed with a need for shelter. Jesus realized that we need food, clothing, shelter, and economic security. He said in clear and concise terms, Your Father knoweth what things ye have need of. But Jesus knew that man was more than a dog to be satisfied by a few economic bones.
he realized that the internal of a man's life is as significant as his external. So he added, seek ye first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness and all of these things shall be added unto you. The tragedy of the rich man was that he sought the means first. And in the process, the ends were swallowed in the means. The richer this man became materially, the poorer he became intellectually and spiritually. He may have been married, but he probably could not love his wife. It's possible he gave her countless material gifts, but he could not give her that which she needed most, love and affection. He may have had children, but he probably did not appreciate them. He may have had great books of the ages shelved up in his library, but he never read them. He may have had access to great music, but he did not listen. His eyes did not behold the majestic splendor of the skies. His ears were not attuned to the nation. Oops. Sorry, I lost my place. Um, to the melodious sweetness of heavenly music. His mind was closed to the insights of poets, prophets, and philosophers. His title was justly merited, thou fool. The rich man was a fool because he failed to realize his dependence on others. His story contains approximately 60 words. And yet I and my occur 12 times. He has said I and my so often that he has lost the capacity to say we and our. A victim of the cancerous disease of egotism, he failed to realize that wealth always comes as a result of the commonwealth. He talked as though he could plow the fields and build barns alone. He failed to realize that he was the heir of a vast treasury of ideas and labors to which both the living and the dead had contributed. When an individual or nation overlooks this independence, we find tragic foolishness. We can clearly see the meaning of this parable for the present world crisis. Our nation's productive machinery constantly brings forth such abundance of food that we must build larger barns and spend more than a million dollars daily to store our surplus. Yet year after year, we ask, what shall I do because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? I have seen the answer in the faces of millions of poverty-stricken men and women in Asia, Africa, in South America. I have seen an answer in the appalling poverty in the Mississippi Delta and the tragic insecurity of the unemployed in large industrial cities of the North. What can we do? The answer is simple. Feed the poor, clothe the naked, and heal the sick. Where can we store our goods? Again, the answer is simple. We can store our surplus food free of charge in the shriveled stomachs of millions of God's children who go to bed hungry at night. We can use our vast resources of wealth to wipe poverty from the earth. All of this tells us something about the basic interdependence of men and nations. Whether we realize it or not, each of us is eternally in the red. We are everlasting debtors to known and unknown men and women. We do not finish a breakfast without being dependent on more than half the world. When we arise in the morning, we go to the bathroom where we reach for a sponge, which is provided to us by a Pacific Islander. We reach for soap that's created by a Frenchman 
The towel is provided by a Turk. And then at the table we drink coffee, which is provided us by a South American, or tea by a Chinese, or cocoa by a West African. And before we leave for our jobs, we are beholden to more than half the world. In a real sense, all of life is interrelated. All men are caught up in escapable networks of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one of us directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. The rich man tragically failed to realize this. He thought that he could live and grow in his little self-centered world. He was an individualist gone wild. Indeed, he was an eternal fool. Jesus called the rich man a fool because he failed to realize his dependence on God. He talked as though he unfolded the seasons and provided the fertility of soil, controlled the rising and the setting of the sun, and regulated the natural processes that produce rain and dew. He had the unconscious feeling that he was the creator, not a creature. This man-centered foolishness had long and oft-times disastrous reign in the history of mankind. Sometimes theoretically expressed in the doctrine of materialism, which contends that reality may be explained in matters that life is a physiological process by, with a physiological meaning, that man is a tragic accident of protons and electrons traveling blind, that thought is a temporary byproduct of grave matter, and that the events of history are an interaction of matter and motion operating by the principle of necessity. Having no place for a God or for eternal ideas, materialism is opposed to both theism and idealism. This materialistic philosophy leads inevitably to a dead end in an intellectually senseless world. To believe that human personality is the result of fortuitous interplay of atoms and electrons is as absurd as to believe that a monkey by hitting a typewriter key will eventually produce a Shakespearean play. Sheer magic. Another attempt to make God irrelevant is found in non-theistic humanism, a philosophy that deifies men by affirming that humanity is God. Man is the measure of all things. Many modern men who have embraced this philosophy contend, as did Rousseau, that human nature is essentially good. Evil is only to be found in institutions. If poverty and ignorance were to be removed, everything would be all right. The 20th century opened with such glowing optimism. Men believed that civilization was evolving towards earthly paradise. Herbert Spencer skillfully modeled the Darwinian theory of evolution into heady heights of automatic progress. Men became convinced that there is a sociological law of progress which is as valid as the physical laws of gravitation. Possessed by spiritual spirits of optimism, modern man broke into the storehouse of nature and emerged with many scientific insights and technological developments that completely revolutionized the earth. 
Achievements of science have been marvelous, tangible, and concrete. Witnessing the amazing advances of science, modern man exclaimed, Science is my shepherd, I shall not want. It maketh me lie down in green pastures, it leadeth me beside still waters, it restoreth my soul. I will fear no evil, for science is with me. Its rod and its staff, they comfort me. Man's aspiration no longer toward Godward and heavenward. Rather, man's thoughts were confined to man and earth. And man offered a strange parody of the Lord's Prayer. Our brethren, which art upon the earth, hallowed be our name, our kingdom come, our will be done on earth, for there is no heaven. Those who formerly turned God to find solutions for their problems turned to science and technology convinced that they now possessed the instruments needed to usher in a new society. And then came the explosion of that myth. It climaxed in the horrors of Nagasaki and Hiroshima and in the fierce fury of 50 megaton bombs. And now we have come to see that science can only give us physical power, which, if not controlled by spiritual power, will inevitably lead to cosmic doom. The words of Alfred the Great are still true. Power is never good unless he be good that has it. We need something more spiritually sustaining and morally controlling than science. It is an instrument which, under the power of God's Spirit, may lead man to greater heights of physical security. But apart from God's Spirit, science is a deadly weapon that will lead only to deeper chaos. Why fool ourselves about automatic progress and the ability of man to save himself? We must lift up our minds and our eyes unto the hills from whence cometh our true help. Then, and only then, will the advances of modern science be a blessing rather than a curse. Without dependence on God, our efforts turn ashes and sunrises. Without dependence on God, our efforts turn to ashes and our sunrises into darkest nights. Unless his spirit pervades our lives, we find only what G.K. Chesterton called cures that don't cure, blessings that don't bless, and solutions that don't solve. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Unfortunately, the rich man, he did not realize this. He, like many men of the 20th century, became so involved in the big affairs and small trivialities that he forgot God. He gave the finite infinite significance and elevated a, a preliminary concern to the ultimate standing. And after the rich man had accumulated his vast resources of wealth, at the moment when his stocks were accruing the greatest interest and his palatial home was the talk of the town, he came to experience to that experience, which is the irreducible common denominator of all men, death. The fact that he died at this particular time adds verve and drama to the story. But the essential truth of the parable would have remained the same if he'd lived to be as old as Methuselah. Even if he had not died physically, he was already dead spiritually. The cessation of breathing was a belated announcement of an earlier death. He died when he failed to keep a line of distinction 
between the means by which he lived and the ends for which he lived, when he failed to recognize his dependence on others and on God. May it not be that the certain rich man is Western civilization? Rich in goods and material resources, our standards for success are almost inextricably bound to our lust for acquisition. The means by which we live are marvelous indeed, and yet something is missing. We have learned to fly, like the, fly through the air like birds and swim through the sea like fish, but we have not learned the simple art of living together as brothers. Our abundance has brought us neither peace of mind nor serenity of spirit. This means by which we live have outdistanced the ends for which we live. Our scientific power has unrun, outrun our spiritual power. We have guided missiles and unguided men. And like the rich man of the old, we have foolishly minimized the internal of our lives and maximized the external. We have absorbed in life and livelihood. We will not find peace in our generation until we learn anew that a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things in which he possesses, but in the inner treasuries of the spirit, which no thief approacheth, nor moth corrupteth. Our hope for creative living lies in our ability to reestablish the spiritual end of our lives in personal character and social justice. Without this spiritual and moral reawakening, we shall destroy ourselves in the misuse of our own instruments. Our generation cannot escape the question of our Lord. What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world of externals? Airplanes, electric lights, automobiles, color television, and lose the internal, his own soul. Let's pray. Holy Father God, um, Lord, I thank you that your, your truths are true. Um, whether they're from words preached 60 years ago um, or, or words preached a minute ago, Lord, your word is true. And Lord, I do pray that we not lose sight of the eternal. We do not lose sight of the wisdom that you have, Lord, that you are our salvation, and that, yes, you use all sorts of great things, but they're only in service of you, that they become good. Teach us how to do that. Teach us how to live life in a worthy manner. Teach us how to care for one another. Teach us how to serve one another, how to sacrifice for one another. And Lord, we, we know, we know that our, our city, um, our city suffers. And we know that, um, that our sisters and brothers, Lord, are in need. Lord, give us a generosity of spirit um, in order to serve. Give us wisdom to show how to invest well,
Lord, and turn our hearts towards you. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, worship team.